Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to New European Podcast. My name's Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hi, Steve. How are you? I am, um, well, I think I'm, I'm as well as expected. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to go back to the pub. Uh, so, I mean, we're going to. This is a bit of a pub theme today, isn't there? I think there is a there is a pub theme. Obviously, we can we can drown our sorrows uh, to celebrate commiserate at the end of free movement, which <laughs> are, which um, which I can see uh, a lot of Tory ministers and MPs have been tweeting happily about. Yeah, quite. Um, well, we'll, we'll, maybe, maybe we'll, t- we'll touch on that maybe when we get to the news. It's been some depressing stuff, hasn't it? Twitter's been particularly depressing this week. Um, and we're well, it's been depressing to... all, all week, hasn't it? You it's know, there's all, these, there's all these jobs going. There's all this yeah. jobs bad news, isn't there? Upper Crust, EasyJet, Royal Mail, yeah. Airbus. There's like 12,000 yeah. jobs have got. Yeah. And yeah. all we're asking for is three jobs to go. Hat Mancock, Robert Jenrick and Dominic Cummings. Is that <laughs> is that too much to ask? Of all those many thousands, it seems extraordinary that they've managed to keep hold of their jobs, frankly, doesn't it? It's, it is remarkable that nobody's gone, no. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, but at least some people get to go on holiday, Steve. Yes, this is true. Stanley yeah. Johnson, the Prime Minister's father, has gone to Greece Um you're not supposed to travel to, to Greece. Uh, How did he get around the government. He flew to Sofia. Ah, um, um, And, uh, I mean, there's actually a ban on people entering Greece, uh, entering Greece from the UK. So it's, it's not just broken our rules, he's broken Greece's rules as well. Um, but by entering through Bulgaria, there is a ban on um, non-essential travel anywhere at the moment, isn't there? So he's, he's so he's broken that, and he has said um, he had to fly to Greece to his holiday home in Greece, or trying to COVID-proof my property in view of the upcoming lessing season. And if he just said I wanted to test my eyes, and I'd had my took my son in the back of the plane with me, I think that would have been <laughs> perfect, wouldn't it? Um, it's amazing, isn't it? Really, it's really difficult when you've got an embarrassing relative, isn't it? I mean, imagine Beautiful. having to. Imagine having to admit that you're related to Boris Johnson. It must be terrible for Stanley Johnson. Poor old Stanley. Well, he's sunning himself, um, but we're still here. Um, and uh, we will do the news first, as we always do. Now, We've got exciting less... news, though, haven't we? We have Personal got some exciting news. Well, uh, uh, you've got some exciting personal news. 
Well, I, I think we've got some exciting personal news. We're, we're not having a baby or anything. Oh, well, we are allowed to get married, though, aren't you, from this Saturday? And we thought it was about time that we formalised this relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that the news? keeping us apart for so long. No, the news is that the uh, next week marks the fourth anniversary of the New European. Newspaper. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Uh, it is quite remarkable. So next week's podcast will be a special uh, issue. We'll be joined by um, some special guests. Uh, we hope, we're hoping uh, to, to be joined by uh, Alistair Campbell, who obviously is our editor-in-chief and, and has been so since the very early days. We're hoping to be joined by Liz Gerrard, fine journalist who has written, I think... Um, the is, biggest it the most ever, yeah. is it the most popular thing that's ever been on our website, her... It's it's the most popular thing that's ever been on, and I was looking at the we very boring now this number keepers. We get these stat reports for how many people are looking at our web stories, how long the people are on, you know, and so that so that we know what you're enjoying, etc. And not only is is it the most read news story for the New European ever, it's the most read news story across the entire group, which owns the New European and lots of other newspapers as well. It is a blockbuster. She's on fire, Liz Gerard, at the moment. So, uh, yeah, it's a pretty systematic dismantling. You'll have, you'll have read the article. I, 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 I think pretty much everyone's read if it. If you're by listening now. at home, it's a pretty systematic uh, <clears throat> dismantling of, of how the government have handled uh, or have mismanaged all of this. So, um, so Alistair Campbell, Liz Gerard. You and me, hopefully a couple of other special guests. Yeah, that'll be yeah. next Friday's podcast. But we're telling you this now, not just to big it up, but because um, you should be able to uh, to to join it and and ask questions uh, live. We're going to record it uh, at six o'clock on Thursday, July the ninth. Um, and um, yeah, so we'll we'll be releasing details on the new European website and social accounts over the week about how you can how you can join in. You can ask a question. You can um, you can um, you know tell us tell us your favourite moments from the last four years of the new European. So um, so check it out, and then it'll be released right. as the normal podcast next Friday. Very exciting. So you can join us as as live as we can be, and we have done live podcasts before. In fact, we've done live podcasts with Alistair before, haven't we? And uh, and it was a lot of fun. We hope to be able to do that again soon. But this is the best we can do at the moment. It's going to be a great evening. So do try and join us live. If you can't, then of course you can you can pick it up on the pod uh, next week. Um, we'll get to the news in a sec. It, I, I know lots of you still do come here just for your news. Do check out other bits and bobs because. Uh, as I've been saying throughout the pandemic, it's probably worth keeping up with the news more than just once a week. Things are happening. Um, of course, we've got Leicester in lockdown again now, and I'm sure yes. Leicester won't be the last place. You don't want to be uh, happily going about your business when you're not supposed to be doing So do check out um, the news. A good place is the New European website, aforementioned. Um, it's, it's having just in, incredible growth on the website. Thank you all for that. Um, and then we will have uh, Matt with us talking uh, an, uh, to another new European legend, um, Andrew Adonis. Um, so in the in, in in the pod later, that will be a lot of fun. And then we will, of course, crown a Brexiteer of the week. But but what's the big news of the week, Steve? For you? Well, I mean, the big news is that is that the pubs are going to reopen. Um, and it's quite good that the pubs are going to reopen because, as I say, it's the, it, that's the, the only way you can sort of 
drown your sorrows at the end of free movement and these idiots gleefully celebrating it. And it also, I think it's going to take me three pints to work out, um, it's going to take me beer, beer, beer to work out what is so special about build, 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 which is, which was the slogan, the three-word slogan of, of this week, wasn't it? The government have launched this build, build, build campaign. It is a fairly hollow uh, thing, isn't it? I mean, it's great that there is some more money for the NHS. Um, it's great that there is some ambition to, to spend some, some money, um, after all. But really, it's not an awful lot of money, is it? And, you know, I hate to sound churlish about this, but... Um, but it, it really is, it, it, the comparisons between this and the New Deal are remarkable, aren't they? You know, the oh, New Deal, with, I'm looking at this thing from, from uh, this BBC fact check of, 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 the, of, the, of Boris Johnson's programme. And the, the New Deal went over several years. And each of the years, I mean, it went over about nine years, didn't it? Seven years, rather, I think yeah, it went over. Yeah. It was and a full term, year, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, full they, double term. they spent a full double term, yeah. So it's eight years, yeah. And they spent between 5 and 7% of, of their GDP, America's GDP, every year. And what Boris Johnson is proposing to do is to spend less than a quarter of 1% of GDP in one year. Yeah. Um, so the idea that this is a, an enormous, you know, Brexit-funded programme that will get Britain back on its feet. I mean, there's... I think the, the 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 stuff for transport. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is is about is it a hundred million or two hundred million? And that, as we as we know, is it's a hundred million split between twenty nine projects. Now, a hundred million is an awful lot of money, isn't it? It's an awful, awful lot of money to you and me. But in terms of transport, is that really going to get Britain moving? I mean, I don't think that buy your... you. Well, it's not going to buy you a set of bollards, is it? Really. Um... <laughs> I think, I mean, listen, I don't, I'm a big fan of infrastructure spending, and I, so I'm not going to beat up the government for spending money. I think that building our way out of an, an economic crash is sensible and perhaps surprising for a, for a conservative government, especially because what we've, what we've just had. And I think I welcome the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson said that now isn't the time for austerity, that the time, times are different now. <clears throat> I well, both welcome and agree with those things. And I can't, you can't beat up on a prime minister for spending money on infrastructure, whether it's a pound or it's 40 billion, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I get yeah, thumbs up from me for spending on infrastructure. However, <laughs> trying to frame this uh, even anywhere close to Roosevelt's New Deal is, is laughable, frankly, and, and smacks of desperation. Um, and, you know, I think really the speech was awful. Um, his speech was not good at all. He sort of rambled. Dan Wooten liked it. What did he? Well, good old Dan. It was, he uh, liked it. And dis- Glenda Jackson's son likes it, likes it, whose name escapes me. What is, what's Glenda Jackson's son's name? The boy Jackson. He's, he's the political correspondent of the Mail on Sunday, isn't he? Dan Hodges. Dan Hodges, that's right. That's yeah. the fellow. They both said it was brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean... You know, respect to both those people. I don't think you, they loved it. I, 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 I'm not saying that the the, the 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 substance of the speech wasn't very good. I just don't think it was a very good performance, and I didn't think the speech was very well written. Um, yeah. And I, and I think you know the bit where he said, "If this sounds like um, Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, that's because it because it is." Well, 
It's not. No, I think the, I think the government I think the government are making the right you know they're going in the right direction towards what I believe is the right economic choice for this country right now. Um, so, as I said at the top, I don't want to beat up on them for that, but comparing it to the New Deal is, is, is silly. And frankly, it took away from some of some of the decent stuff which is in there, because me and you are talking about it now, not being like the New Deal. Um, a lot of the commentators were saying, "What? This isn't this is nothing like the New Deal." Um, and so, yeah, I thought it was a bit of a. Uh, I, 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 I think the government were hoping that we'd have a week's worth of uh, high vis and and hard hats uh, with with ministers and the prime minister, obviously, uh, you know, on, on the on the front pages, um, talking about spending and talking about building and talking about infrastructure. Yeah, and and it hasn't quite worked out like that. And also because there's a very you know, I wrote a piece for for our newspaper out here in the east of England. And the headline on the on the on the um, at the top was build 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 when 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 because you can when you've got when you've got a whole country and only hundred million to go around, um, every the majority of people are going to miss out on this spending. You know they're not going to see their single track road dual. They're not going to see their dual carriageway turned into a motorway. They're not going to see villages bypassed. They're not going to see that bridge that they need because because those things would take up all that money. Um, I mean, basically, they've, they've thrown the regions a couple of roundabouts each, haven't they? Um, yeah. And that, that, that's not enough. Um, there is other stuff, of course, that they announced during the general election campaign, and I think a lot of those spending pledges in the general election campaign went a, lot, a long way to, to winning the Tories the vote, um, certainly up in, in the north of England. Um, so, you know, the, along, alongside those, there, there's reasons to be hopeful rather than reasons to be cheerful, I think, yes. with the the economic mu- music in the background. And I'd be fascinated to see <clears throat> what Rishi Sunak has to say next Wednesday when I think we might get a bit more of a realistic view of the economic state that we are in and what it's going to take to get us out of it. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is some, some pain in there, um, by which I mean, you know, some kind of... The, They'll try and frame it in a different way, but I wouldn't be massively surprised if there's some kind of tax rises in there because we do need to pay for 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 the financial intervention, which I've been reasonably supportive of since the start and remains so with regards to coronavirus. You know, furloughed workers, etc. The grants that have been available. Um, so that you know, we do have to pay that that money back. I thought there was some of the commentary was a little bit. Um, a little bit short-sighted, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly... I like Piers Morgan. I'm fairly ambivalent to what he does on uh, Good Morning Britain. But, um, but uh, he, you know, he, he was trying to argue, well, the Prime Minister's told us we've got all this cash, but it's our cash and we're going to have to pay it back. Why are we spending... You know, should we really be spending it now? We've just got to pay it back. Well, I think that's probably... shows a, Perhaps doesn't quite get on top of how a country's economics works, you know, and if, we, if we're going down this route of spending our way out... Um, you know, which which we've done we've done before, um, and of course, what, what, I mean that is what the New Deal was to much larger amounts, as we've mentioned. But that was the economic plan behind the New Deal to get people working, get building. You know, the Hoover Dam, of course, is the famous big yeah. infrastructure project that came about from the New Deal. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, it's spending money to make money. is That's the plan. Uh, let's hope that that is what happens. But I think we might I think we might get some darker news from Rishi next week, um, Rishi Sunet next week. I, I hope not, but it, I can't see... You know, we spent a lot of money in the last few months, a heck of a lot of money, and we've promised a lot more, and I support that, but it, it does. the bills need to be paid at some stage, whether it's now or a little bit in the future, who knows? Uh, well, I think that's, I mean, I think that, that's right. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Because it's only a couple of weeks ago that people were talking about temporary cuts to VAT to get people spending again, and... Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I do, I do um, wonder. Again, we we sort of talked about the optics of the week, didn't we? You mentioned that earlier on. It was supposed to be a week of good news and hard hats and build, build, build. And um, you know, it, it it has turned into a week like it's 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 like one of the weeks that we can remember from the the recession at the start of the 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 um, 1980s and then the recession at the end of the 1980s it's one of those weeks where maps of britain appear with um with uh, on on uh, news broadcasts with um you know job job losses and company logos being superimposed and how many how many jobs have gone and um I know, I know balancing the books is, um, is, uh, is necessary at some point. I just wonder whether it's necessary at this point. Um, well, I mean, the, one... sorry, just one quick point, Steve, on that. I think well, <clears throat> we're gonna, there's going to be a blood, there already is a bloodbath, and it's going to get deeper, um, very sadly, for, for jobs in this country. There's two reasons for that. The obvious one, lots of businesses have been shut for months and months. Yep. And the second, which is less obvious, but there are companies who probably weren't doing particularly well before this who've now got a ready-made excuse to, to, to make difficult decisions. Um, so the, both those things combined will, will you know, it creates a perfect storm, really. And many thousands, very sadly, many thousands of people um, are not going to be are going to lose their job um, in the in the coming months, no doubt about it. I think every week is probably going to get worse for a while, um, and especially you know when we see the phasing out of the the furlough schemes, and we've seen some big names jump this week, but we'll start to see smaller businesses who maybe only employ a couple of hundred people yeah, who yeah. who are, who are desperately trying to keep their staff, but but simply can't um, once the furlough scheme winds up. So. You know, there is there is pain ahead, and you mentioned VAT as well. I mean, I haven't seen any figures yet, but um, for, for sort of spend, um, certainly regionally anyway, uh, on on the high street. But you know, we um, we uh, were talking a few weeks ago to uh, someone who deals with uh, footfall and things in 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 our in our cities, and and the percentages are very much down. Uh, since the since the phased reopening, as you would expect, and I think there are there are some people who have been lucky and have been managed who have managed actually to put some money away during lockdown. I don't think they're dashing out and buying flat screen TVs and new cars. I think the reasons for that is one, they're not sure if they're going to have a job very long, and two, I think people have refocused uh, what they need in in their lives a little bit as well. I think that. It, there doesn't seem to be the rampant yeah. consumerism outside on the streets just at this moment. It'll come back across it will because people like things. But I think that the, the you really actually, and we talk about confidence of 
you know, I write about it all the time, the confidence of the consumer. But you don't tend to see it. I feel like we can see it and feel it, you know, out on the out on the high street at the moment. So um, how do we get people spending again? Not sure, really, but that is that is something that maybe Rishi Shunak will look at, uh, you know, next week. I tell you what would be good. This is my idea. It's just come to me like a flash of light. Go on. Give everyone. Uh, I'll, I'll ring him straight afterwards. He's going to love this. More spending. Give everyone ten thousand pounds. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Give everyone ten thousand pounds. It's an updated version of the Keynesian idea of putting um, twenty pound notes in. In milk bottles and burying them to spark the economy it's basically quantitative easing but instead of lending it to banks to put get you know so people getting more debt just give it to them there you go that's kind of what they, i mean they've done that in america haven't they not ten thousand i mean ten thousand pounds ridiculous man but i think they, <clears throat> people have got um some funding from the government a friend of mine lives out there you know a couple of thousand dollars here and there <clears throat> the hope is they go and buy a new car or whatever um really we don't want people saving money do we we want to spend it so i don't i mean that's me yes, being that's right. a little bit silly there i don't think that we're going to all get a, a a windfall next week but there's going to have to be some kind of impetus to get people back out and get back to normal because people are still very scared i mean we're talking about the economics of it for a little while now but people are still scared and you know if we just want to go back to pubs quickly um and then i knew you were about to make a point Stephen. i jumped in and i'm very naughty and i'm sorry but um, you know, pubs pubs are reopening. I was passing a pub earlier on today, and I could see they were getting ready. They're putting their signs in their one-way systems, all that kind of thing. That's great. But I saw a survey that I think Peston did on Twitter, and I know that's in no way scientific, but nonetheless, a couple of hundred uh, responses. Only fifteen percent said they were going to a pub I on saw that too, yeah. Saturday. Yeah. So I don't. Th- there is going to be people, of course, who will go. It's a chance for a little bit of a party. Go and have fun. Fantastic. Um, I love the pub. You love the pub. I don't know what you're doing on Saturday, but I ain't going. I've got no plans to go to the pub. Um, I'm, and, and it's it's partly because I don't want to. I just I, I just think that the potential for it getting a bit messy is there, and I'm not interested. But also, um, I I want to go to a pub where I can not have to queue for a table and stay there for just two hours and yeah. order a nap and. I want to wander up and chat to the, the barman about the football and stand at the bar for a bit and then find myself a seat and watch the football. You know, I don't, I, I, it just seems to... Well, you're um, not going to be able to do that for a while. No, now, I, no. I mean, now I am going to the pub on, on, on Saturday, but I'm, right, not going to, right. I'm not going to turn up. The, the, the pubs that I would normally go to, a lot of them are, are remaining shut. They're yeah. smaller... They are, you'll be surprised to hear, old men pubs. Of the old man pub (laughs) variety. Um, um, And a lot of those are staying, I mean, it's just not economically viable for for places like that to open. And a lot of those are staying, um, are staying shut. I have booked a two hour window with an open air table at a time that it looks like it's not going to rain. Uh, I'm going with my partner. I would very much like to have a cold beer in a uh, in a, a glass uh, poured for me by somebody else, and I, I will enjoy that. I'm not expecting it to be anything like the normal pub going experience that that you and I enjoy. Um, I think the fact that uh, relatively few pubs are opening. Um, I think the fact that you know. Most of the ones um, 
are, that you would that you would want to go to are asking people to book in advance. Um, I think all of these things will uh, will come together, and you know, it might not be the sort of Corona Geddon um, um, uh, thing that that some people are, are worried about on on Saturday. Um, but you know, we will we will we will wait and see. I'm sure there will be some places that will be rammed. I'm sure that there will be some places where there are big queues of people waiting to get in who are not socially distanced. I'm sure there will be some um, some um, some disturbing photos and disturbing video that comes out of this weekend's opening. But you know, I'm 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 sort of hopeful that the uh, that people will you know just treat this with the, the the caution that it um that it requires but i think the days where you would you know the days of of sort of being at your desk at six o'clock and going to a few people well should we just go out to the pub and wandering through and then picking one in the town center or where you live um and then sitting down where you want i think those are all over for the for the moment aren't we and and if you do want to go to the pub you are going to have to book and you are going to have to order you know I, we've been told that when we get there we've got to download an app and order through that um and then it, stuff will be brought to us the whole situation the, the whole dynamic of going to the pub is, is going to completely change and um i would quite like to, I, I, I would quite like to see what it's like and also you know i think there's a novelty value involved as well isn't there there you is know, the, yeah, yeah. the first the first the first weekend we were talking about the high street a second ago the first the people said the first the first few days didn't they when the other shops reopened the monday and stuff like that it was it was really busy it was busy again on the saturday um that the shops reopened um that the, the, the non-essential shops reopened but but by the sunday was it last sunday or the sunday before the the the, the stores in in central norwich where we both live were relatively deserted and, and a lot of them frankly were closed as well mm. so um so you know i think there's a novelty value I'm, i am planning to go on saturday but i'm not sure i'll be i'm not sure i'll be shipping up there three or four times a week from now on um, no no I, and and yeah i think I mean, you know, there'll come a stage when I do when I do want to go book a table and do it for a couple of hours. But I'm 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 just going to wait and see. I think for the time being, and yes, you know, we've got to be so careful because we've seen what's happened in Leicester. The last thing that this country needs, and that any town, city, any region needs, is to slowly come out of lockdown, only to be plunged back into it because it will be uh, that would that would be truly devastating. And and of course, one one. One sector um, that is very much linked in, in a way to the sort of pub and hospitality thing is, is theatres and, and, of course, live music venues, Stephen. They really are up against it, aren't they? Well, this is, I mean, this is really heartbreaking for me. You know, going to, going to live music is, is a, a big part of um, how I see myself and how I expect that quite a lot of people listening to this see themselves as well. Um, the theatre you know, is, is a, again, something that I enjoy going to. Um, this week, I mean, this morning, I've just read a statement from the, the Royal Exchange in Manchester. Now, my mum was the first ever PR person for the, the Royal Exchange um, in right? Manchester when it, when, it, when it opened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She worked there. My mum worked there for several years. And they're, they're laying off 63% of their staff. Yeah. Um, in where we live in Norwich, the, the Theatre Royal and the, the Playhouse, I think it's the, the figure there was 56% yeah. um, of their staff are being laid off. 
people who were on zero hours contracts w with them um, uh, are uh, more than half of them are, are have been told that they won't be coming back as well so that's a lot of people who work in bars and ushers and the sort of people that you see every time you go to the theatre I know quite a few people who work um, uh, in the theatres um, in, Nor in Norwich and it's obviously really sad news and then you see pantos being cancelled which you know I mean theatre is an incredibly popular thing in this country people underestimate how popular it is mm. um, and I think you know there's a statistic isn't it that more people go to the theatre in, in Britain every week than go to watch football. professional football every that's week that's right yeah um, which yeah. is which is a big surprise um, but you know small theatres make an awful lot of their of their annual income through the panto season when it is absolutely packed with with parents and kids and there are two and sometimes even three performances a day yeah um, and their pantos are being cancelled you know there is carnage at the live music venues there is there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be a recognition you know oliver dowden put something out 10 days ago or so now didn't he saying you know you can you can return to rehearsals you can have, um, you know, you can pr productions can start involving people. So radio can productions can start again and stuff like that. Uh, radio performances and stuff like that can start again. But you know, people in the sector are waiting to hear about when they can. What, you know, what is going to help them go back to work? And and it doesn't. It, it's not just a date without some more intervention on top of the furloughing and on top of being apply, able to apply for loans um this industry is just gonna gonna go and um you know there is just going to be complete carnage and, and that restart plan is meaningless without extra help and that is really what is needed <laughs> and i don't know if you saw these these tweets from emma cole from bristol university but britain's creative industries now obviously that involves far more than live music venues and theatre but Britain's yeah. creative industries are worth 92 billion they mm -hmm. employ 2 million people they're growing twice as fast as the rest of the economy obviously before this in 2018 they put in 100 billion into the economy and uh, going back a few more years in 2013 the creative the size of the UK creative economy was calculated at 9.7 percent of our, our total economy a bigger sector than the financial services sector at 9.4% and only uh, a point smaller than 10.7% of all manufacturing. Now, is, this is an incredibly important industry. It is. Um, you know, um, and it is an not, industry not just for our, not just in our, in our guts, you know, because we relate to live performance and it's a big part of us being, you know, the, the, the kind of country we are, but, but financially as well it's, it's it, that's incredibly important and it is it is an industry which traditionally has been overlooked by tory governments i think and um i, I there was a, a, a fascinating fact and it, i'm sorry if i've got this wrong but i seem to recall that during coming out of the the last recession after the credit crunch the creative industry was actually the only only industry which grew through that entire period and i think our um, it's so important during times of human crisis, isn't it? And great art, I'm sure, will come out of lockdown. Um, I've seen some bad art, and that Rolling Stones song, <laughs> really bad. Maybe let it settle down first, artists out there, artists, musicians, poets. Just 
little time to reflect before you do your coronavirus art, and we'll we'll get to it in a year or so. But um, it, it is hugely important, and you know we've seen Paul McCartney, Liam Gallagher, and others today calling for the government to do something about live music because it's not just them, of course, is it? Well, I don't think anyone's worried about Liam Gallagher or or Paul McCartney or no, whoever. I think, not I worried think about those guys. Worried about the riggers. Worried about the riggers and the roadies and the bar staff and the you know the people who open the gates up and the coach drivers and the, you know there's a massive sub industry around live music and and theatre of course and every industry but just focusing on on live venues and it's so sad you know every single day when I walk home I walk past the um, a little music venue by the river here in here in Norfolk and it's still got signs up promoting stuff that never happened in at the end of March and April and mm. um, you know those shows will never be seen and and, it, and it's 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 you know it really is like like someone pressed pause at that at that moment and the th- problem is how you know how you can't I mean there was some nonsense I read somewhere over the week because it was Glastonbury Festival weekend last weekend I should have been about how Glastonbury Festival could work on with social distancing I mean I don't I've been to Glastonbury Festival on numerous occasions I've been to loads and loads of festivals through through my life and I cannot even begin to imagine how you could have a socially distanced pyramid stage performance no you can't and you know what there's no point trying there is no point putting a festival on um while there isn't a vaccine because it will be rubbish and it will also end up costing lots of people lots of money and will end up you know probably doing more harm than good um i'm not again worried about the big festivals not worried about glastonbury I'm more worried about those the smaller venues, the pubs, you know, that that put on that put on up and coming bands, the, the the middle of the road ones that get those either journeymen bands who've been around forever and had one good album back in 1983, or the bands that are just coming through. You know, everyone's got that story, haven't they? Oh, I remember when I saw Nirvana at so and so or Oasis in so and so. You know, where there's you know sort of. 12 man and his dog sort of thing How, they that can't happen can it before there's a vaccine we can't have crowds of people shoulder to shoulder um it seems watching it live seems, music singing you know singing at the top of their voices yeah exactly that i mean it just seems incredibly unlikely could you have open air theater now that's that's something else um but the season that is good. Should... i mean that is potentially that has got the ability to to work more than more than yeah, but the you know, season, music. but the season for that is is over. Could you have, you know, could you have a, could you have a small festival of? I mean, they were. I was talking with a couple of friends um, the other day who were involved in in this kind of thing, and they were saying, well, you know, that I think they've they've been tipped off that the government might be able to say, well, you can have a you can have an open air performance of. 500 people up to 500 people well you know that's I mean, just setting up an open air performance makes it unlikely that you're going to be able to make it pay if you've got 500 people yeah. um i've got a, i've got a friend who's tried to trying to re who's rescheduled a music festival from um early in june to 
the start of September now, I, I, th I, I think that's about three or 4,000. And I think that's, you know, highly unlikely that that's going to take place. And, um, and hopefully it will be able to take place next, this time next year. But I don't think even that is certain. Um, so, I mean, something is going to need to be done. And, and, and also, you know, again, if you are, if you are an actor, um, at the moment, this is a, a, a terrible time. If you are a comedian um, who makes their money, I've got a couple of friends who are comedians um, who are, have had, you know, national tours cancelled and that kind of thing. What in, in, uh, one of my friends has had um, pretty much a sold-out national tour in decent-sized venues cancelled. Um, you know, he's got no other source of, of income apart from his savings. I've got other other friends who are in bands who make you know I mean if you if you're if you're in a band nowadays with streaming taking over from physical music sales you're making 90 to 95% of your um of your money out of live performances not you know not just what you get um from the promoter but also the merch that you sell there so you know it is really really difficult and you know, it, the, the, this bonfire of our creative industries is, is massively, massively worrying on top of all the other job losses that we're looking at. It's a yeah. downer this week, isn't it? It is rather, isn't it? It is rather. Um, I mean, you know, serious times and all that. Uh, I'm trying to think if I could tell you a joke. I don't think I've got any. Um, mm. No. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you it's funny. I'll yeah, tell you it's cheer us up. Um, Theresa May. What's her, she's she's come back, hasn't she? But she came back with a sort of a, a hard Huddington Bear hard stare at Michael Gove. Yeah, and uh, and then she sort of shook her head in a disappointed way, like like you like your mum looked. You yes, know, and that's exactly that's exactly what it reminded me of. It was like when you said that you'd be back at nine, wasn't it? And then you sort <laughs> of came back smelling of ale at half eleven, and your mum would be there, just sadly shaking ahead as you trudged, trudged up to uh, up the wooden hill to bedfordshire um <laughs> she she sort of she sort of she um she had a go at go didn't she about appointing yeah. david frost as the national security security advisor yeah. will do you think theresa may will actually i mean theresa may was somebody who is humiliated by boris johnson and the erg and then at every stage um, over the last, how long has it been? It's been about 14, is it 14 months since she went? She went in May, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, she's never voted against the government, has she? I mean, is she, is she just going to be, a, is, she, is it actually serious, this, for the government, that Theresa May is a bit annoyed with them? So I think my, my view on this is that... Um, Theresa May believes that she was fairly badly treated, I think, by sections of her party, and I think she's got reasonable, oh. reasonable um, uh, concerns with regards to that. Um, let's not forget that she was a dreadful prime minister, by the way. She really was an awful, awful. prime minister. The worst, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. And you know, tight. Well, maybe let's give her a few more years and see, because uh, you know, Boris is coming up quick behind her. Um, <clears throat> but. But yeah, Theresa, Theresa May showing her disappointment towards government. I don't think he's going to have the kind of impact that you know other former prime ministers doing. Um, I don't know how. I, I mean, you know, Blair went straight away, didn't he? Um, yeah, he did. Who, who else have we did. had? 
Uh, well, Cameron, Cameron went almost straight away. He, he lasted three months. Yeah. The rest of them sort of, I mean, Brown was in there for quite a while, but he, he basically was, you know, he was working for the UN and the World Economic Forum at the same time. And, you know, I mean, the, the one that, Tha- I think Thatcher made a couple of sort yeah. of, you know. The, the thing with these, the, the, the difference between, I think, all, well, I mean, if we look, you know, <clears throat> um, let, let's take Thatcher as the best example. I think Margaret Thatcher was such an imposing figure on British politics and still is, world politics even for a time, I, I guess, that from the backbenchers, if she says something or shakes her head, that is going to set earthquakes, you know, going. And she also had so much support in the party still. I don't think anyone for a second would put Theresa May in the same class. So interesting for us to chat about and interesting to note that the former prime minister is not on side with certain things with regards to the current government. But I don't think anyone in number 10 is really that worried. No, no, I don't think she's got much credit, has she? But then, of course, you know... I'm not sure about... I'd say... say, I think we might be being a little bit unfair on not credit because i think probably she has got some goodwill in the party i think probably yeah. just hasn't got much clout which yeah, was always exactly. something that she she never really had as prime minister did she no no she didn't uh, i mean edward heath didn't have much credit with the country did he but it was still quite embarrassing for um yeah for margaret thatcher especially in the early days of her yeah. reign when unemployment was going up and there didn't seem to be a real end in sight and of course there wasn't much end in sight for, for a lot of people um yeah. through her uh, through her reign as though not uh, until about, other people until about 1995 right? yeah a lot of other people enjoyed it very much didn't they but um but um, you know, I mean, will she, you know, will, will she stay on the back benches grumbling? At, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very, I was ex- very excited to see that she, she's made um, eight hundred thousand pounds from eight speeches. On the, yeah, on the it's lecture not bad. Circuit. It's I not did, bad, is it? That, I, I mean, I, as you know, Steve, I'm, I'm often booked to do public speaking engagements. Um, yes, that's right. And I, you know, I haven't made quite that much, but you'll remember, oh, what, getting on for four years ago now, I was booked to to uh, host the AGM of the uh, Roofers Association. Yes, in, that's right. In in the capital in London, so I guess it's things like that that she's getting booked up to do. Well, imagine if she starts taking your gigs, but she. Oh. Um, oh man! I mean, she's done a few for. I think she had a couple cancelled for Goldman Sachs. Um, she's done quite a few abroad. I see that she has, um, she's, um, she's been using, um, I think she's been using private jets or, or she's been flying first class, but she's certainly been using the first class lounge at Heathrow, um, at, which is at a cost with her added security of something like £4,000 a time. Um, so it's, it's costing, it's, I think it's still costing us a bit of money for her to go around making 800,000 quid. Um, the content of her speeches, the only bits that we've heard about so far is somebody said to her, I think during the Q and A, somebody said to her, what is your advice for young women in politics? And she said, behave like a man, um, which I, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't notice that, you know, when uh, maybe that was on the back of that T-shirt that she wore that said, this is what a feminist looks like. You did have an asterisk on it and then at the back of it. And then she also said, they said that one of her central messages, it's right to persevere even when the odds against success seem high. Yeah. And she she certainly did that. But, you know, um, I don't think she's learned very much, has she? 
No, no, but I did. But I did quite enjoy. I did quite enjoy this. I did quite enjoy this week um, with with her shaking her head. That was yeah, that was it funny. was good. It Quickly now, because we're running out of time. What did you What did you make of PMQs this week? I'm fascinated by PMQs again. I have to say, I think it's um, it's become a real jewel. This already hasn't it? And I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated to see how it how it carries on. I think there is. I think the the, the battle lines are being drawn now, aren't they? Boris Johnson is going to paint Keir Starmer as a, you know, elite, uh, an elitist, a knight of the realm, a lawyer. Um, See, know, I, I don't think, think he's, he's not even taken Brexit out of his, um, out of his back pocket yet, but soon, you know, before too long, it, it will be, you didn't want this to happen. Um, and, um, and Keir Starmer is going to paint Boris Johnson correctly as somebody who is flippant, who hasn't got a plan, who's got no attention to detail. Um, and when you see Boris Johnson sputtering um, and spluttering to, um, to reply to Keir Starmer, I think that is a, something that's going to cut through. Um, but I, I think also it's... think that Boris Johnson's thing is, is, you know, I think that's probably a line of attack which has been tested and is, is going to be quite effective. Um, I, I do think Boris Johnson has got better uh, in the past few weeks on PMQs, but I still, I still do think that Q is way out in front of him. I also think that as, as far as insults go, you're a lawyer isn't not most awful. I mean, you know, I mean, we've all got our views on, on, on lawyers, but you know, Keir Starmer was a human rights lawyer, um, and uh, you know, it wasn't. He's 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 not one of those lawyers that charges you hundred quid to send a letter to your neighbour because they're parking in front of your drive or whatever. He's you know, he's a, he's a pretty, pretty successful good lawyer. I mean, you know, I'd, if I'm having an argument with someone, I'd say you bloody lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you're a proven lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, not, it's not great, Mr. Johnson, that. It's not great. Um, but they've got, they've got problems. They've both got their own problems outside of their, them facing them up to each other, hasn't they? I mean, they're not, I mean in, we've seen this now, of course, last week. I think it was just after we'd recorded the pod last week, actually, that the news broke about... Rebecca um, Long-Bailey. Becky Long-Bailey, BLB. Uh, what do you think of that? <laughs> was, she, was, he right to, was he right to give her the heave up? Uh, I think he was right, and I think he, I think he, it was a shame that he dithered and tried to make her put out a statement and all of that. I think he should just got, he should have just got rid of her immediately. I mean, I, I think it was. Do you know? I mean, I think it was a a defining moment. He he had to do it. I didn't That's think it helped right, her. Yeah. I don't think I didn't think it helped her case either. You know, I mean, it, repeating what, endorsing, appearing to endorse what Maxime Peake said, which was a, a falsehood about the Israeli security services training um, American police uh, to, to put their knees on people's necks, um, was ludicrous. I don't think it really helped um, Rebecca Long-Bailey's case that the interview that she retweeted and said Maxine Peake is a goddess or something like that, didn't she? Um, was I mean she was Maxine Peake was directly critical of Keir Starmer in it wasn't she and, and um, yeah um, it's, I mean this was it was I think we said didn't we in fact it was while we were doing our podcast from bunkers when we talked about as we still are of course um, when we talked about the cabinet you know Keir's Keir's new cabinet and I think we both agreed then it's only a matter of time before Rebecca Long Bailey is given the heave ho. This, yes. this was an appointment, you know, and, and for, as far as Keir Starmer's concerned, I bet he's delighted it's happened as quickly as it has. 
Yeah. Because one, it makes it sends out a very clear message that this is not the party that it was a year ago under Jeremy Corbyn, and we are not going to be putting up with even the slightest hint of any of the anti-Semitic nonsense. And I don't think Rebecca Lombardi is an anti-Semite, by the way, but we're, we're not going to be putting up with even the slightest hint of these ridiculous conspiracy theories. Um, you know, this is a different party now. We don't deal in that anymore. Everything has got to be bottomed out and, you know, factually correct, and we stand as one. So to move himself away from that, good for him, he had to do it. And also, I, I, th- I guess he would, she would have been, she was clearly not fully on board or she wouldn't have done it. She was, she's not daft. She she probably knew it was yeah. only a matter of time. And, and that was... I mean, it's a silly, it's a very silly way to go down, frankly. I would have, you know, if I was her, I could have found far better ways to uh, to fall on my sword than retweeting, which, which was actually a really crappy bit of journalism, that interview, that they didn't realise that that was the main bloody line in it. It was a uh, shocker to me. I mean, going straight back to one of my reporters' desks and being told to rewrite it, but there you go. Um, so yeah, I think that's good. it's good news for Kia that good news for for Keir Starmer that he's um, that that you know within the party he's, he's drawn a line and said cross this and you're in bother, mm-hmm. um, and and I guess Boris's Boris Johnson's problems going forward are going to be with uh, with the red wall voters who who were yeah. promised a lot and aren't going to probably get as much as they were promised now, partly he because needs to deliver yeah yeah I mean I I've got some sympathy with him because. Nothing is going to be easy to deliver in the next few years, in the you know, in the fallout from from where we are. Uh, anyway, listen, should we cheer ourselves up and go back to pubs? Because I think you've got a pub quiz, haven't you? I've got a little pub quiz, and then a pub, we uh, pub and quiz, then we, and then we should then we should listen to Matt Withers and Andrew Adonis, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Let's, we should. Let's, let's do let's do a, let's do the questions, and then we'll do them either side of Matt and Andrew. Um, so I've got five questions for you, as usual. I want you to name four of the six Westminster pubs that have got division bells. Right. And if you don't know what a division bell is, well, I mean... It's that album, isn't it, by Pink, by Floyd. Pink Floyd? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but obviously, everyone knows what division bells are. They, they ring when it's time for the MPs yeah. to come out of the pub and go yeah. and vote. Uh, yeah. So name four of the six. Yeah. Question two. What world record was set by a future Prime Minister at the Turf Tavern in Oxford in 1963, a pub that I have visited on many occasions? Yeah. Uh, question three. While running for Mayor of the Capital, what did Rory Stewart name as his favourite London pub? He was mocked for naming it as his favourite London pub. Uh, what happened for f- question four? What happened for fifteen minutes at the Plough in Cadston in Buckinghamshire in nineteen ninety two? In fact, that's not right, is it? Nineteen ninety two. That should be two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. What happened for fifteen no, minutes? Be. The- <laughs> I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I've gone completely wrong here. What happened for fifteen minutes at the Plough yeah. in Cadston in Buckinghamshire? You obviously 20, had a lot to drink. In twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. It's in twenty twelve. Yeah. Right, okay. The Plough okay. in Casden, Buckinghamshire, 2012. All right. In 2012. And finally, I think we've done this one before, but how many pints a day did William mm. Hague claim to have drunk while he was acting, uh, he, was, he was doing work experience with his family's soft drinks firm, wasn't he? And he sure. used to go yeah. around the pubs hauling yeah. crates of soft drinks in there. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Those are the questions, and I'll give you the answers on the other side of, of Matt and Andrew. Take it away, Matt. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. 
For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Hello again, Matt Withers here, and today I'm joined by new European columnist and author of a new biography of Ernest Bevin, Andrew Adonis. Andrew, how are you and how have you been spending lockdown? Uh, Matt, great to be with you. Well, I've been writing on lockdown. I finished the uh, Ernie Bevin biography, which uh, I'm glad that the uh, New European is running this week. There are big excerpts in it in this week's edition. And uh, I've started on the next book, which is uh, a biography of Tony Blair. So uh, I've decided to go from uh, the low peaks to the high peaks, and that's kept me very busy indeed. Oh, great. I'm very much looking forward to the, uh, to the, to the Blair biography. Um, but in this week's paper, as you say, we run a large extract from your fulsome new biography of Ernest Bevin. Ernest Bevin Labour's Churchill, which is, a, which is quite the title. Uh, what was it that attracted you to Bevin as a subject? Bevin has been almost entirely forgotten, even though he's one of the 20th century greats. And for new Europeans, he's particularly important because modern democratic Europe, as we know it, owes a huge amount to Ernie Bevin because the big battle after 1945 was whether... West Germany and Western Europe were going to be democratic and free or essentially going to become part of the Soviet zone. And we now take for granted that they became democratic and free, but that wasn't the case at all at the time. Uh, Just as Stalin effectively took over Eastern Europe, he made a serious lunge for Western Europe too. And there was a big move towards having what's now, what became West Germany, having that as a unified Germany, which would have been neutral, demilitarized, and would probably have come under Soviet and Stalinist control. And it was because of Bevin, who stood up strongly to uh, Stalin, didn't allow the Soviet Union to extend into West Germany and forged the transatlantic alliance, what became uh, NATO after the Berlin airlift, which was a massive standoff with Stalin. It was because of those great moves by Bevin, that uh, a free West Europe developed. So he's a big figure. He's also uh, arguably the most important um, trade unionist in in modern history. He founded the Transport and General Workers Union, which was by far the biggest union in the free world in the mid-20th century. And he was at Churchill's right hand during the war because he was Minister of Labour and he was masterminding the home front while Churchill was commanding the battlefront. And that is also what justified the title Labour's Churchill. It's really interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to admit, I'm, I'm 40. Um, I read the extracts yesterday prior to speaking to you. I feel largely ignorant about him and large swathes of this period. I don't think I'm alone in that. Why has he been forgotten? He, he's been forgotten partly because he was neglected by the trade unions and the Labour Party. He was a, a man of power and a pragmatist. He was also had very deep principles. He was a modern social democrat who wanted a much better deal for the workers. But most of his work was done in painstaking wage negotiations, uh, regulation after regulation as Minister of Labour, and then negotiation after negotiation as Foreign Secretary. He didn't have one single massive legacy like his namesake, Anouin Bevan, who set up the National Health Service. And in this... uh, battle between left and right within the Labour Party, uh, Bevin was very much a pragmatist. He was hand in glove with Clement Attlee in managing the Labour Party and organising for victory, both in 1940 and in 1945. And to be blunt, that was less sexy than the romantic Bevan, who um, actually opposed a lot of what Attlee and, and Bevin were doing in terms of the 
pragmatic agreements with the Americans, uh, the tough line against Stalin, because Bevan and others on the left were, um, uh, were much more sympathetic to communism. But to my mind, it's hugely important, and you can only understand the success of the great Churchill and Attlee governments in 1940 and 1945 by understanding the role of Ernie Bevin and the crucial contribution he made both in terms of leadership and in bringing the organized working class both into government through himself and putting their interests at the heart of that 1945 government. I mean the title of your book Labour's Churchill suggests it's um, a more uncritical book than it is but you're not uncritical. I mean for, for new European readers he, he was an well, you describe him as an unreconstructed imperialist, and he, he failed to engage with the initiation of the EU from the, from the offset, didn't he? Well, the, the more I study historical figures, uh, the, the more I'm aware that even the greatest figures have great faults, and you need to see them warts and all, and you don't do them any favours by pretending that they're on a plinth, you know, a statue who uh, just needs to be worshipped. Bevin was great on trade unionism, on labour rights, and on standing up to Stalin and communism. And he was a fantastic minister of labor in the war, but he was a, a, a Victorian by temperament and he was a strong imperialist. He actually opposed uh, even what Attlee was seeking to do in giving independence to India. And also, unfortunately, there was an anti-Semitic streak too. He was strongly opposed to the setting up of a, of a Jewish state in Israel. And as I chart in the book, there was an anti-Semitic strand there and I'm afraid that too also became a feature of left-wing life and those who have been appalled as I was by uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the anti-semitism that ran riot over the Labour Party in the last few years you need to go back uh, to the 1940s and the deep anti-semitic streak in that Labour government to understand what's going on. What would David have made of our modern politics leaving Covid aside um, the, the, the the movements of the Labour Party in recent years, Brexit, would this have been a politics he understood? He would have been absolutely amazed at the dominance of the Conservative Party over Britain in recent decades. Uh, in 1945, Labour won its great landslide victory, and then it held on to power with a reduced majority in 1950, and Bevin died in 1951 before the 1951 election. At the time, people thought that a new democratic, social democratic order was uh, going to take root where Labour would be the dominant party. After all, now everyone had the votes and there was a massive reaction to the unemployment of the 1920s and 30s, which was blamed on the Tories. And this was going to be a popular victory in 1945 and it would see uh, Labour in power as sem on a semi-permanent basis, as did happen in some other countries. Sweden, for example, uh, the, the Social Democrats remained the semi-permanent uh, party of power. In Britain, by contrast, Churchill won in 1951, uh, a few months after Bevin's death, and the dominant party in the period since then has been the Conservative Party. And part of my argument in the book and part of the reason for writing it is because I believe the failure to produce more working class leaders like Bevin, great trade unionists who also became great politicians, I believe that failure lay at the heart of the weakness of the Labour Party over recent decades. And that also needs to be studied because it's very relevant to the present day. Before I let you go, Andrew, I feel like I should paint a picture for our listeners. We're, we're doing this via Zoom. You're very naturally attired. Is that a picture of Gladstone to your right? It is, yeah. Another, another great hero of mine. I think of, of the people who created the Britain we know today, 
Ernie Bevin, Churchill, Gladstone, they're three of the, of the very greatest figures. Well, thank you for your time, Andrew. And if you're keen to read more about Ernest Bevin, there's a great old extract from the book in this week's paper on sale now, or you can buy the whole thing for £20 from bitebackpublishing.com. Thanks, Andrew. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back. Thanks very much, Matt. Fascinating stuff there from Lord Donish, a friend of the pod, and we'll be more from Matt um, in the coming weeks, of course. Uh, right, let's do these quiz questions, and then we'll get so down the first pub. one. So your first one is name four of the six Westminster pubs that have got division bells. Right, pubs, well, not clubs. Right, so I've, I've scribbled a few down. So the Red Lion famously has a division bell. That's one. Uh, St. Stephen's Tavern. That's two. Um, what, are we talking, what about bars inside the palace? No, these are outside ah, the palace. Well, I've got, I've got Strangers Bar, Sports and Social, Moncrief's. No, none of these. All right, well, they have got division bells. Yeah, they have, yeah. Um, right, wait a minute, let me think. Since the, uh, oh, God. Um, oh, I don't know, you, oh, Annabelle's. <laughs> no, well... They are the Marquis of Granby, right. the Westminster Arms, the Prince Albert, and the Blue Boar, which I think the Blue Boar oh. is more a sort of club in it than a, a Blue pub. Boar? Is there yeah. really a division bell in the Blue Boar? There is a division. I've just seen a picture of it. I've wow. just seen a picture of it on the internet. You can get well, anything the, on the internet. The Blue Boar, it's not been there that long, but it's only been there six or seven years, the Blue Boar. Um, I can't remember what it was before that, but I preferred it before. Their burgers are nice, though. Anyway, go on, next. There you go. So next, what world record was set by a future Prime Minister at the Turf Tavern, Oxford, in 1963? I don't know. That is uh, future oh, okay, so Prime minute. Minister... Go on. Yard of Ale. Indeed it is. Oh! And who set, who set the record? Right, 63, uh, future Prime Minister, Yard of Ale. Well, it's not going to be... Who was Prime Minister in the 60s? So Wilson was the Prime Minister. Yeah, he was. Uh, Heath, no. No, no. <laughs> it's actually the Prime Minister of Australia, Bob Hawke. Oh. He was a student there, and he did a Yard of Ale, and, and the, it's still behind the bar, the Yard of Ale um, thing in, in, the, uh, in the Turf Tavern in Oxford. Um, and he did it in, he drank a yard of ale in 11 seconds, and a yard of ale yeah. is about two and a half pints, so that is good Jeez. going. i tell you what, that'd be good for social distancing as well. Yeah, it used to have a little, it used to have a little plaque or some kind of sign as well, talking about uh, Bob Hawke in, in, in that back room of the Turf Tavern. Wow. Um, while running for mayor of the capital, Rory Stewart, glory for Rory, was, was mocked for <laughs> naming what as his favourite London pub. You know what? This is I've fantastic. Got, I've forgotten I about this. I don't know what the answer to this is, but I'm going to guess the worst pub in London is a pub on um, on uh, in Leicester Square called the Mo Moon Under the Water. Have you ever been in there? Oh yes, I have been in there. Yes. Is that it? It is not. No, he said his favourite London pub because he doesn't drink his Pret a Manger. Uh, and what happened for 15 minutes at the plough, uh, the plough in, in Cadston in Buckinghamshire in 2012? Um, I've really got no idea. That's a fantastic question. 
Uh, it's that Nancy Cameron was uh, the eight-year-old Nancy Cameron was oh, left yes. in the toilets <laughs> by her parents, the Prime Minister and Samantha Cameron. Oh yes, that that um, one. I do remember. Yes, in in the old the classic Home Alone moment. Um, <laughs> and finally, how many pints a day did William Hague claim to have drunk? Um, I believe it was in, seven, wasn't it? It was 14 pints a day. Oh, good grief. He said he drank four. He used to drink 10 pints while delivering. So a pint in each pub. He did 10 deliveries a day. Um, and then he would go out in the evening and have four more pints. And he claimed to, <laughs> that this happened every day during the summer holidays when he, between the ages of, he was 15 to 21. Oh and my think, God! And I think "chinny reckon" is the uh, is the, the operative phrase, isn't it? Fourteen is, pints a day. That is very special, uh, Mister Hig. I did want to ask him about that. I was interviewing him in a place you know, Slawit. Oh, Slawit, uh, yes. Yeah, in, on the, in the outskirts of the Home lovely of a Huddersfield. Silent woman. He was. Um, he he That's was a doing. person. Yeah, he, in fact, I think we were walking past it, and I said, why don't we pop in and have all those beers you like? And he just pushed it off, and it was very polite and very nice. And then we tried to there's – a, there's a window cleaner in, in Slawit. You don't spell it like that. You spell it Slathwait. And, um, and, the, and the window cleaner has a sidecar with a dog, and he puts these ladders in the sidecar. Now, this is what, eight, 17 years ago, I guess. And what a Wallace and Gromit film was out at the time. And a clever photographer tried to get us to said to William Hague, "Will you get on the bike and we'll do a sort of Wallace and Gromit thing?" And he was completely up for it, right? And we're walking towards the <laughs> sidecar and bike, and he's like, "Yeah, no problem. I'll definitely do it." He was campaigning on behalf of a current MP who didn't win then, called Maggie Throop, but she is an MP now for somewhere in the Midlands, I think. Um, and as we got about fifty yards away the window cleaner dashed out, jumped on his bike and sped off. So we never got to do it, but he was, oh. up, for, he was up for doing it. I was very impressed with him. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, he was, he, was, uh, he was an interesting chap, but he didn't, didn't have any beers that day as far as I saw. Well, you never know what happens at home with him and Fionn. Oh, I bet they're straight on the... Straight on the what 14 it pints apiece. It'd be Stella, wouldn't it? Well, I think so, yeah. No, it'll Stella be like Julia or something like that, won't it, <laughs> He is peculiar, old, old and peculiar. Yes. Um, can we do the Brexiteers of the Week? Yes, yes please. Uh, I've got numerous Brexiteers of the Week. Um, Michael Gove is one of my Brexiteers of the Week. Um, I'm just going to shake my head at him. Shake your head sadly. Um, this week he tweeted, um, he was talking about, you know, the leaving the... Uh, the withdrawal, um, the extension to the withdrawal agreement running out and all of that kind of stuff. We can't extend the withdrawal agreement now. Free movement has, has ended. Uh, as I said, he tweeted um, that he didn't like the EU because I was a child in care whose adoptive father ran a business destroyed by the EU. And if you remember during the referendum, he, he said this. He did an interview with the BBC. He said... Um, I saw the pride my father and my grandfather had in their business, and obviously it was very difficult to cope with seeing everything they had built disappear. I was just a schoolboy at the time. I don't know what I was going to be doing in the future, but it stayed with me. So it was sort of, sort of you know, Michael Gove's personal revenge mm. against the EU for destroying his father's business was the 2016 referendum. And a few days after he said that on the TV, I don't know if you remember this, but Ernest Gove, Michael Gove's dad, 
um, um, he spoke to the Guardian and he said it wasn't any, there wasn't any hardship or things like that. I just decided to call it a day and I just sold up my business and went on to work with something else. And then somebody had a quiet word with him, I suspect, because he issued a clarifying statement saying my business closed as a direct result of Europe. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, I think a lot of what this government are doing is about revenge. And in fact, I've written about this in the New European print edition um, this week. Um, I like to pick out quotes from the Sunday Express that Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, uses. He's got a thing in the Sunday Express called Jacob's Weekly Wisdom, yeah. where he, <laughs> he quotes he quotes a, he quotes a, 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 an old quote of the past. Sometimes it's Shakespeare and stuff like that, and he sort of he, he describes why it's fitting for the modern setting. And this one is from Edmund Burke. Um, and it is the quote is a state without the means of some change is without the means of its own conservation. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said in the Sunday Express that this means that a true Tory always welcomes stabilizing change. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been one of the Tories opposing the temporary lifting of Sunday trading hours, which the government is saying is necessary to save jobs. And he, he opposes this on religious grounds. And he also said last week, talking about Bob Hawke again, he also said that all Britain should celebrate on July the 4th with a yard of ale. And mm. this harks back to these ideas. Do you remember his pompous note to his new staff when he, yeah. uh, when he became leader of the House? Um, and he said that they had to use imperial measures um, in, at, at all times when they were writing, um, writing to him and uh, internal documentation. And he's, this is all, you know, this is despite the fact that we adopted the metric system in 1965. And Jacob Rees-Mogg was only born in 1969. But, of course, a true Tory always welcomes stabilising change, um, apart from all of that kind of change. <laughs> Nigel Farage is one of my Brexiteers of the week. Oh, um, but not the Brexiteer of the week, so he slipped down. He slipped down. He's been writing about Donald Trump. Uh, he wrote a, that, This was also in The Express. He wrote a piece about Donald Trump in The Express, and I was stunned to read this because it said, he clearly no longer possesses the robust mental faculties needed to take on the top job. He's often forgetful, and his speeches verge on incoherence. And I thought, well, that's absolutely right. And then I realised he was uh, Nigel Farage was actually talking about Joe Biden. Ah. Um, um, but you could say all of that of Donald Trump. Um, he said um, he'd met Donald Trump at the Tulsa rally, the, the, the flop Tulsa rally, a couple of weeks ago. But he said before that, the last time he saw him was on February the 29th. And he said back then, Trump was riding high, uh, with a booming stock market, and some experts were contemplating a Trump landslide in the, the November presidential election. And I just looked back to see whether that was true, and it was almost true. Um, a booming stock market, well, stocks had just suffered their worst weekly loss since 2008, and some experts were contemplating a Trump landslide. Um, well, he was down 4% uh, against Biden in the polls. And now, since Nigel went over there to boost his morale and give him a bit of advice, he, he's, he's now a much more healthy 9.4% down, um, which is great news. The Brexiteer of the week, though, is Marc Francois. Um, uh. There are two amazing things about the old lunch and meat statue of Penfold out of Danger Mouse. Um, this week, he was in the Evening Standard. He said, "Believe it or not, I do fifty press-ups every morning." I don't believe and it. I'm going to go with not. <laughs> yeah. um, and he also sent uh, Michelle Barnier an amazing letter. Now, have you read this? It's no. quite something. It is titled "A Missive from a Free Country," 
It begins, I am writing to you in my capacity as chairman of the European Research Group. It is just possible that you may have heard of us. I mean, he must have absolutely loved that one, mustn't he? What? He must have been still giggling about it, even as Michel Barnier's assistant um, filed that uh, letter in the waste bin. It went on and on and on, saying we should be friends. Of course, it then made numerous threats. Uh, about how Britain uh, was much better than the EU and would thrive on its own and they couldn't accept any EU laws and why did Michel Barnier keep bothering him? Um, and at the end it said, uh, all I have ever wanted to do, all, all my colleagues have ever wanted to do is to live in a free country which elects its own government and makes its own laws. And does someone else want to tell him or am I going to tell him? So... Mark Francois, we do, it's a free country, we do make our own laws, we do elect our own government, you're a fool, and you're the Brexiteer of the week. Congratulations, Mr Francois, not the first time, and I doubt it will not be the last. The last. Um, now then, we just need to quickly remind you all, of course, about our very special live podcast, which you can be a part of, um, yep. Thursday, July the 9th, 6pm. Alistair Campbell, who's the editor-at-large of The New European, and Liz Gerrard, who is uh, a fine contributor and columnist, um, are confirmed already. Uh, me and Steve will be there, obviously. Yeah, um, don't let that put you off. Yeah, don't let good. that put you off. Um, and we'll, so we'll be recording it live. You'll get it as the pod the next day, because if you can't make it, but it would be great to have you along. We absolutely adore um, meeting you guys and, and when you get in touch with us by any means um, as long as you're nice uh, even if you're not actually I don't mind just any any kind of attention is fine by me um, so that that is going to be great fun so check out our socials I think it's probably the best place uh, to find out more about how you join and all that kind of thing Steve isn't it? It is. It'll be. Uh, it'll be uh, on our website and um, on our socials next week. So, uh, and it'll also be in next week's newspaper. Of course, if you want to do it, it'll it'll be you know this podcast this time next week. So, if you can't join us, you know you'll be able to listen to the recording. Uh, but I hope you can join us live. It would be um, great if you could, and I'll get, you'll get the be. chance to to speak to Alistair and Liz. You won't want to speak to me and Steve, obviously, but Alistair yeah. and Liz have got something far more interesting to uh to to put before your ears listeners um steve what should our listeners do right now please buy the print edition of the new european um subscribe you can get 13 issues for 13 quid if you're a new subscriber um go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk please leave a great review of this podcast on your podcatcher of choice especially important if you're listening um on apple podcasts or itunes um, but, uh, but please do leave us a lovely review. Please join our Facebook readers group. Um, please follow the new European on Twitter at the new European. And you can follow me on Twitter too, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Well, you can follow me at Porrit. That was the new European podcast. Thank you for listening. We're live next Thursday. Check out again the socials for more details on that. We will see you, well, probably not see you, but we'll hear from you then. And until next week, Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Maybe we should get him to do them live next week. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Here you go.